The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the military side of Chicks and Chainmail. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. This week, to round out 2022, we're bringing you DJ Butler's conversation with editor Jason Cordova about the new Chicks in Chainmail-inspired anthology, Chicks in Tank Tops. Joining these gentlemen is Robert E. Hampson, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, and Marissa Wolfe. In just a moment, we'll hear this conversation about one of the most iconic and fun anthology series Bain has ever put out and about the stories in the latest Inspired By installment. But first, the news. Just in time for the holidays and in honor of last month's release of Penrick's Labors, we're offering discounts on all Bane Lois McMaster Bujold titles, including her groundbreaking Vorkosigan saga, the Penrick and Desdemona novels, standalone novel The Spirit Ring, and more. Head on over to Bane.com to see the full list. These discounts expire at the stroke of midnight as 2022 becomes 2023 and are good wherever Bane ebooks are sold. Looking for the perfect gift this holiday season? Well, look no further. Give the Bane books lovers in your life what they really want more Bane books with Bane books gift cards. You decide the amount, but remember, e arcs are $15 a piece. Monthly bundles, $18. Pretty sure they already have everything? Head on over to the Bain Cafe Press Store and check out our wide variety of Bain merchandise with travel mugs, t-shirts, tote bags, hats, and more. There is something for every Bain fan. And don't forget about the Bain Challenge coins. All of this information can be found at Bain.com and act now while supplies last. Uh, welcome to the Bain Free uh, Radio Hour. I'm uh, DJ Dave Butler, uh, and I'm here today to uh, talk with the editor, one of the editors, and several of the writers uh, involved in our uh, Chicks in Tank Tops anthology, out now in trade paperback, uh, and also in um, in all your favorite ebook formats, DRM free when you purchase them at Bain.com. Always, of course. Uh, Sharon, Steve, Marisa, Jason. Uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hi. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Jason, we're sad Esther couldn't join us, um, but uh, we're thrilled to have you. Um, and I'd love to hear from you a background. This is a, an anthology that has, you know, we, have, we get anthologies for lots of reasons. Sometimes we do an anthology because we have a piece of art and we think we'd like to have an anthology that matches with it, or because we want to do an anthology in somebody's setting. This anthology has kind of a pedigree. So uh, tell us about some of the background uh, and, and how you came by this. Set, set us up the big picture, Jason. Okay, so Esther Friesner approached Jim Bain way back in 1980, 89, 90, I don't exactly remember when, about this great idea of chicks in chainmail. 
sounded awesome. She wanted fantasy, humorous, and that's what she got. And Jim wasn't a little um, sold on the idea, but Esther, if you've ever met her, is very convincing. And she went ahead and sold the uh, anthology to Bane, and it did amazing. And eventually, Jim even got in on the naming process, and five, an five or six anthologies were eventually published. And uh, then they kind of went on a bit of a hiatus for a few years. And then in 2020, you know, at the year we all were locked down, um, I'd gotten into the habit of doing Friday nights. Hey, let's just get on Facebook and be stupid with all our friends because I haven't seen anybody in a year at that point. And I, I started joking around because I was reading Thanks for the Memories, which is another Esther title. <laughs> But not a but not a Bane collection. No, that is a Bane one. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> I should have known that. The cover is amazing. Mister <laughs> so. is, is shameless. She yeah, and and I should I say, and she, she's written a, a an introduction to the anthology, and I won't give it all away. It bears reading. It's entertaining in itself. But her account is that the first Chicks in Chainmail book. Uh, had a written disclaimer that said the idea and the in particular the title were not Jim's idea. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was very funny. That's awesome. So we were we were joking around and I was I was listening to this uh Fallout Boy song called Thanks for the Memories and Thanks for the Memories and just clicked in my head. I was like, Tanks for the memories, tanks for the memories. Oh my god, why did Bane never publish this? this is right up their alley. And I started joking around on Facebook. And then, you know, it, as people are wont to do, they piled on and then buried down in the, about midway through the thread, suddenly Tony pops in with, uh, pitch this to me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty much how Chicks and Tank Tops came about. <clears throat> Although I definitely had to change the title. Um, <clears throat> but Chicks I, and Chainmail was fantasy and the yes. title is tongue in cheek. I have not read that one, but but, but surely some of the stories. I mean, the idea, right? This is Red Sonia and the chainmail oh, yeah. yeah. that we saw ubiquitously in the '60s and '70s and whatever. Because it was chicks in chained males. Chick, the chick is in male. Turn the other chick. Uh, wow, there's another yeah. one too. Chicks ahoy. Ch chicks, yeah. chick and chain chain males. Yes, chicks and yeah. chained males. Yes. And that, that apparently was Jim's, was Jim's title. <laughs> so That's we came awesome. around. Full <laughs> <Old> circle. <laughs> okay, but this does not mean though that every now some of the stories in are are individually humorous. Yes. In this collection, right? But they yes. aren't all humorous. And, well, and I, by the way, I, sorry when I when I set forth the the requirements, I told all the people I was inviting, I was like, please. I just want a chick, chick, a, a strong female, and a tank. Everything else is up to you. And the majority of the stories came out science fiction-y, which is great. The, actually, the only two fantasy stories were myself and uh, G. Scott Huggins. Everybody else turned in these amazing science fiction stories. So that was, that was great. Yeah. But... Some of them are funny. Some of them are not. Uh, they're they're some of their some of the some of the female characters in question are children, right? So yes. it's not it's it's actually quite a quite a gamut. Um, you mentioned Scott Huggins. His story is uh, is sort of historical fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But there's a there's a the the title is fun is humorous, right? The 
cover is very gonzo and fun. The contents actually cover a wide range. You know, they just have a there's a there's a female character, and there's a tank, and, or yes. maybe there's more than one tank. And yeah, there's all kinds of stuff in there. Um, so, um, uh, so I don't, I don't know what the right order is this uh, is to 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 talk about them. Uh, Jason, do you uh, is there any preferred story you'd like to start with? Well, the first one that I'll start with the first one that was actually turned in, even though it's not the first story in the anthology, uh, it was Rob Hampson's um, version uh, story called Mother. And it was a very dark story and had children and a tank in it, like you said. And um, Rob, Rob, talk about your story for a minute. Hi, Jason. I'm excited to be part of the Chicks and Tank Tops anthology. My story, Mother, is a feel-good story about motherhood. Right. Actually, the chick in my story is an artificial intelligence named Mother. Mother is a combat nanny installed in the tank of a platoon commander tasked with keeping track of battlefield information, uh, conditions advising the commander, uh, warning of threats, and overall helping to protect the troops in her charge as they deploy to combat a People's Liberation Army. Unfortunately, Mother is unable to succeed at her job. She can't keep her troops safe and loses the platoon. Her tank is all but de destroyed, but is hidden under a collapsed building. As the enemy herds civilians into refugee camps and treats them badly, a few of them find the shelter of the tank, and eventually they reawaken Mother, giving her a new family to protect. Jason, you often tell folks that Mother is the darkest story in the collection, and you find that somewhat surprising from me, since I'm a hard science writer and a scientist who likes positive outcomes. But actually, Mother comes from a background of writing some realistic military science fiction that projects the future of the battlefield and conditions and how we can use technology and artificial intelligence and future tech to change the outcomes on the battlefield. The story was written in parallel with one that I wrote last year that appeared in World Breakers called World Enough. In both of these, we see an artificial intelligence or a synthetic intelligence being used in the battlefield. They have a common thread regarding the sacrifices that ordinary people make in war. It's a dark place, but we use the science and the technology to make it better. So ultimately, I see Mother as being hopeful. And on that note, I hope the readers do too. So look, there's an example where, you know, who is the female character? Well, there's the AI, right? That's sort of having failed the soldiers. It's a very poignant story. Having, mm -hmm. having, having lost the battle with the soldiers, the AI then finds a new female, right? The AI itself is a is mother, but then um, this, the next generation after the soldiers who are interned in a concentration camp, Right, basically get rescued, or at least we understand they're rescued um, uh, by this young woman and and uh, and mother who is the AI in the tank. A lot of fun, very very kind of poignant. Yeah, um, it was it was a pretty intense story. Yeah. 
Well, uh, a lot of the stories are quite intense. Uh, I really enjoyed, uh, Sharon and, and Steve, I really enjoyed uh, yours. Now, this is a Leaden story, right? So we probably a lot of people very excited besides me to read this. Uh, yeah, maybe you can tell us about, about your story. Um, uh, it is a Leaden story in that it um, takes place in the Leaden universe. The Leaden universe is a big sprawling place with lots of multi-banks. Um, it features, um, the, it's actually the backstory of Cassegary and Nicholson, who is a um, dealer in information in one of our books. And this and is how the, Cass got to be Cass. The, the reason that, um, I, I think the reason that we, we came to that, Sharon had been wanting uh, to to follow along to actually figure out how he got here, and this is part of the joy of working in a universe the way we do. We can go back and forth, and we can look at things afterwards and say, "How did they get there?" And still have a way of tucking the story, tucking the story in. Uh, a number of the stories that we had published in anthologies have actually been that they've been um uh, fill in the blank somebody would say whatever happened to the taxi driver whatever happened to the taxi driver and so then then we'd have to we'd have to um we wouldn't have to but we would take up the challenge and uh and do that so in this case sharon had had an idea and uh, said well we need a tank top right and um, that sort of started to build the story. We needed a tank top someplace that not everybody knows about. And, uh, knows about. and, uh, and from there. And, we had, and um, from there. I had also been tween, as I do from time to time, with various religious orders. And um, Actually, Angel came first, I think, in the story. I know I wanted to write a story about Cass, but um, Angel also was the first voice, the setting for, this, for the story. Um, the story's name is Gadriel's Folly, and Gadriel is one of the many um, angels or demons who has um, been blamed for giving men um, or teaching men the arts of war. So, um, and since Gadriel was an angel and we had a cathedral, and I thought, why not? Sister Mechanic will do that. So the Sister Mechanic, the order of Sister Mechanics was invented for the story, is that? <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Her order was invented for the story. No, oh, very, very cool. So, um, uh, so tell us a little about the story. You have, you have two, two principal characters. One's the mechanic. And then I guess uh, Cass is the soldier who uh, is, is sort of the uh, slightly AWOL hero who has to get rebuilt at the beginning, right? AWOL is unkind. AWOL is unkind. Yes, he just <laughs> didn't really have clarity on his orders. Yeah. Um, and he's an, he's an information broker, a librarian, and his head is stuck full of all kinds of things. and. At some point in his previous pre-soldier life, he had come across a schematic for this particular grinder that is coming, bearing down on him and his compatriots. And he manages um, to 
disable it. And the very first thing he says when he wakes up, as so many Reading Universe heroes say when they first wake up, is it worked. And Angel is tasked with, or Angel decides to put him back together. She she has an option when he's brought in, which is either to let him go or to rebuild him. And she decides that she needs to rebuild him. Yeah. Uh, or build him. In this case, in, in this case, the Order of the Angels has a contract, um, <clears throat> pardon me, has, has a contract that's not entirely religious. It's partly what, what can we do? What can we do for the Force? And if she had felt that his his uh, leftovers from his his own, uh, his own prior mechanical uh, prior self uh, were more valuable than having the um, than having his whole body there, she would have had the right to go through and and say, um, okay, he's done. We'll pray over him, and and go on. But she had made that decision in part because he was in part. fact. A hero. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although it's not, it's not a slam dunk, right? It's not. I mean, he's he's badly uh, hurt, right? He has to be sort of built. Um, in fact, I'm not an. Uh, is is yeah, he? He basically he's he's a he's an organic, right? Like he's he's a, a biologically human, but basically he becomes a cyborg. The rebuilding means he gets a synthetic body, basically, right? He is, in fact, a cyborg. About the only thing, as Angel notes, about the only thing that's left of him that's actually any good is his head. Yeah. Um, all of all of the rest of him has to be rebuilt and augmented and um, rewired and rejuiced. I don't even know. Um, but he is a cyborg, yes. And he's um, when we meet him in the Gathering Edge. He is a broker on information, a cyborg of brokering information at, at a place called Edmonton Beacon. Yeah. And he collects old manuals on how to fix turrets. And he, he collects old manuals on all kinds of things because, and he's thus a source for anybody who finds an old weapon or a part of a weapon that they think they might be able to bring back. If they have to bring it back, they go to him and say, do you have any of these? Do you, you know, it's like, do you have the fire for this or that? Do you have a, do you have the manual that will tell me how to put this in? Do you have, and that's where he has um, uh, survived in, in, in the distance, himself not being human. And he, he has found a location that, uh, not, not being very human in any case, and he's found a location that permits that in a space station where as long as you do the job, they don't care what you look like. No. Well, this is a good, so this is good. You're talking about the character as we see him in uh, books that are chronologically later, although you've written them much later. Yeah, you've written them earlier. To tell us, um, for the benefit of people who have not already read, now I'm asking you like a, this is a, a Herculean task. Um, how many Leiden books are there? Is it, It's over 20, right? The twenty fifth will be published in July. Okay. So, okay. 
So summarize the series for us. <laughs> tell, us tell us about the series, right? Because because this is a backstory to one of these characters who we meet in the books. So what what's going on in this universe? Like who who are the grinders? What what's the you know what's the sort of short description of what the series is about? Um, when 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 we when we first started on the um, on the universe, I came home from a chess match, and Sharon had been working on the story all day long, and there was a sentence on the. Uh, on the page, the only part of the she had filled up a trash basket with in our old typewriter uh, days and with with the starts of this story. And the sentence she had was very simple sentence. And she said, I think I'm afraid I have a novel here. She said, I think I'm afraid I have a novel. And I looked at it and I said, no, I'm afraid we've got a, a, a series. And um, and when we were pikers, sometimes seven books. Um, we, we've gone along with that. Um, to let's see, once there was a um, solid state universe that the enemy was trying to turn into crystal, and a bunch of people escaped mm -hmm. the solid state universe into the Leaden universe. Um, and so all of the adventures begin. The Leaden universe is vest and it is space opery. It follows. It loosely follows one family called Clan Corval, but it also branches out into other um, avenues as the um, as the writers have ideas. Um, the good thing about working in a space opera universe is that almost anything goes. Um, you can have grinders, you can have sister sister mechanics, and you can have um, love stories, mysteries, and action adventure. So we just are basic. We just basically set it up so we have this <clears> venue <throat> where we can whatever whatever story we feel like telling today. And we're and we started off with the intention. It's not, a, it's not a series, actually. So, yeah, we we started um, off with the intention of not focusing on the future. It was not intended to be a predictive uh, a predictive universe. It was uh, a universe where we could play, and it was a universe not of exactly mainstream uh, USA. We were we were trying to uh, work out of the backgrounds that we've shared in terms of books that we enjoyed. And so we wanted something that had uh, a little bit of feel of the Regency romances. Oh, because we wanted we wanted there to be, uh, flowing language and 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 those kinds of possibilities, and what happened to and us is that the uh, getting once we got into the universe, we discovered there were all these rules and all these reasons to get your head cut off, and you had to be really careful if you if you annoyed the wrong person, he'd shoot you in the foot and then hit you in the back of the head. I mean, you know, he, uh, and that was that was everybody would say, well, of course. Uh, so that was one side. The quote-unquote Terran side, which would be more recognizable, uh, perhaps as uh, from an English-speaking background, a, a U.S. background, if you will, um, we're mostly off on the side. And what we do then is we, we put these groups; they're already in conflict with themselves simply because they're they're like the English aristocracy of Georgette Hare, um, but. They're also then in conflict with these other people who would be more um, the ruffians from from America. 
Yeah. Fantastic. A lot of fun. And book 25, what's the title of book 25 that comes out this summer or later this year? Book 25 is, is book 25 is Salvage Right. Salvage Right. And it takes place on Tensori Light. <clears throat> Fantastic. And it's a direct sequel to Fair Trade. Is it not? Uh, no. 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 Not? <laughs> I'm working on the right now. <laughs> okay. This is how, how things happen. Um, it happens about the same time as Fair Trade or a little after Fair Trade, but um, the characters in Fair Trade do not show up, except by letter, I think, um, in yeah. Salvage Right. Yeah. Um, fantastic. And now we actually have guides that set this kind of stuff out on the website, but if you were going to recommend a, a starting point in the series, if someone said it, who said, oh, this is interesting, I like space opera, I like, I like the idea of the kind of Regency space opera, wow. What, what would your ordinary recommendation be for a first book to read? Well, the first thing I ask is, what do you like to read um, that's not science fiction? Um, if someone likes Regency romances, I say mm -hmm. Local Custom and Scout Progress and Mouse and Dragon. Um, if they like action adventure, I say Agent of Change. If they like um, coming of age stories, I say Flight Link. Okay. So there are several several doorways into the universe. Now there is also a uh, there is a place on the web that our fans have put together called the Leaden Wiki. And if you go to the Leaden Wiki, it uh, has 238 pages, uh, I think, or something like right now. But if you if you go to the Wiki, there are lists of the books. And there were there was at one point several lists of people's recommendations of how to get into the uh, universe, depending on what you want. So, But the Leaden Wiki is, is one way in. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. So uh, in the uh, now... Sorry, go ahead. I thought I was talking over someone. Um, in terms of this story, then, what happens is uh, those two uh, end up sort of being left to defend the cathedral, and we we see you know kind of the battle play out. Um, and I won't I won't give any spoilers, uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, but, uh, is it fair to say this is an action adventure story? Like in those categories okay. there's definitely a romance okay. element <laughs> it's i don't think of it as being an action adventure story but okay uh, okay so how do you think there, there is a battle in yeah. it nope i and think of it as um two people um getting to know each two people getting to know each other under very bad circumstances and learning to work with each other and then making the decision of what are we going to do when push comes to shove. And we have our orders, but um, are we going to actually take our orders this time? Uh, yeah. And that's very much it. A lot of the leading universe stories have to do with partnership and collaboration and people working together for the best of the group. And so that's where that falls for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, 
Well, I like to, you know, there's a couple of points you guys have talked on, give us, uh, touched on, give us nice links to other stories. You talk about uh, um, Regency era romance. We have a, another story in the collection that is a Regency romance. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, if, if you read it, why, why don't you tell us about that one? We'll take some of the burden off Jason. Oh, yeah. Okay. Jason, it's all you then, I'm afraid. For which one? Uh, tell us about Esther's story, which is Regency Esther. romance. I mean, it's not even just Regency romance. It's Jane Austen, right? It turns it's Jane Austen. It's uh, a quoting Pride and Prejudice. It's a wild ride. She takes Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, throws in every... I don't even have a proper title for it. It's like an Estherism. Is that a word? It's a word now. It's a word now. Estherism. And it just, she makes this beautiful, amazing, crazy story work. And I, I, I had to read it twice when I, when she submitted it, she's like, here, here's my story. And I, was, I read it the first time and I actually said out loud, what did I just read? Go back and read it again. I'm like, okay, that makes way, you have to read it twice. Cause it's just that fun of a story. And there's a lot packed into a small space, which I love short stories that do that. And that takes a certain skill level that I, I definitely don't have yet. But Esther's master. So it, it's it's Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, opening open up the nine gates of hell, uh, fighting capybaras with the love interest who's not the love interest. And it is, it, I, I, I literally can't talk about it without spoiling the whole story. And tanks. It has tanks. It has right. a tank in it. Yes. The the chicks in question are the four daughters of the family. Yes. Right, I mean, it's right and prejudice. Uh, yes. and, and Lizzie in particular has a hobby of tanks, which we discover early on when she whistles and a tank responds like a dog, and yes. uh, comes out. Um, it, it was fun. It was a great story, and I it, it's like it, it's, it has that lighthearted seriousness to it. It has adventure romance a lot of uh building up to the uh like the relationship building and it, it's like i said it, it, there's a lot to unpack in that story and it's and it's definitely uh at the humorous end uh yes humorous kind of gonzo over the top tongue-in-cheek from the first word to the last um a lot of fun yes um but, but also on religious orders. I love this. You guys get you guys served up nice slow pitches on the subject of uh, religious orders, right? Phil Woolrab uh, has a story which starts out with Sister Mary Catherine sitting in her tank, um, which uh, is a pretty provocative image. Uh, why, why, Jason, why is Sister Mary Catherine uh, in a tank? Uh, well, it's part of their order. They are there to defend a small village along with a holy uh, hospitaliers. I can't. Yeah, I can't hospitalers. Right? She's got a bunch of infantrymen who are basically future post-apocalyptic crusader knights. Yes. And that's pretty much what this is. It's post-apocalyptic crusader knights. Nuns yeah. with guns, as Philip said when he uh, told me the story and he gave it, it turned it in. And basically, they're trying to save the, a small village from the this barbarian Mad Max-like horde coming in and they've got a massive big rig 
that's armed to the teeth. They've got their own little buggies and it's, it's just a straight up action adventure with the religious order doing everything they can to hold off this attack and give the people time to leave. Yeah. And there's a nemesis who's, uh, I think her name is Mafion or something, but she's basically pretty brutal. Uh, and we get a pretty, pretty graphic kind of, uh, you know, sh- human sacrifice scenes to underscore yeah, right out the gate. No question. Who's the, who's the good, who's the good priestess, the good nun, and who's the villain. Right. Uh, yeah. and that's what it is. There's, there's these two female, um, religious leaders kind of facing and, and Philip did an amazing job portraying the good and the evil and how, how they're conflicting and what their conflictive reasons are like, yeah. uh, the, the, the sisters are there to protect the people she's there to gather the the villainous is there to gather more sacrifices for her gods yeah and that's it's such a good yin yang fight when i that's not yin yang balance counterbalance english is not my first language this is very very clear <laughs> opposites right they're foils. Yeah, they're foils yeah yes so so um Maurice, I'm going to make you wait longer. I want I want you to like you're 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 the cleanup hitter here. Um, uh, and and Jason, I want to talk about your story, but first, I, I you kind of you kind of hid something from us. You said uh, you said I wrote a fantasy story, and Huggins wrote a fantasy story, and that's all the fantasy stories in the anthology. You left out David Drake. Oh, I didn't you know, David count Drake, that as man. fantasy. David Drake, really? Hold on. There's like goblins in an airship, which is powered by like, they 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 have like a dragonette, like a baby dragon, and they like irritate it somehow. I forget what they do to make it fight the cold. What do you mean it's not fantasy? Nobody tell David Drake I didn't think his story was fantasy, okay? He's coming for you, Nobody tells him. He's never going to (laughs) know. Um. So, but he's got he's got two right so how do you with, how do you end up with two what's the background well, are these are these reprints like did you know well, these stories already the first, what happened was david turned in a really fun story and it was called it was uh airborne the next mission i was like that sounds like a sequel that's weird read the story this is definitely a sequel but i've never read the story before oh. so i had to hunt for it and i found it that we published it in 19, the first story in 1996 and uh uh gallows all the way to the gallows uh it was a collection of david drake short stories and i put and i saw them and i went to tony weiskopf and i was like tony these stories need to be together can we get the reprint rights for the first story so we can have the sequel and have them together and she said yes do it so went to david asked him if we could do both stories he said sure yeah i I like getting paid so (laughs) so yeah it's a story of the dog uh the dog goblins uh smart uh, dumber than number three smart uh, right it, it, it's fun it's quirky the way the goblins attack is they fly into the air in these like hot air balloons and they deliberately crash them into the opposing uh well they try side, to drop they're also rocks. Throwing rocks at them but they can't hit anything with the rocks right no, they're and horrible they shots with the comedy it's it's comedy because the goblins are incompetent idiots right and what all they well, want is to really go down and bite people which they're not incompetent they're just not smart they can't hit people with (laughs) dropped rocks i'm they can't hit massed formations of troops with dropped rocks 
Oh, they start getting graded when they run out of rocks, though. <laughs> well, at one point, they throw the thaumaturge overboard. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, again, so there's, so there's, so there's some comedy. Uh, but, okay, all right. Tell us about your fantasy. Now, you co-wrote with, Ka with uh, Ashley Pryor. Yes, Ashley Pryor. Uh, first, time, uh, first time story she's ever, she's, she's a YA author who's just getting her feet wet in publishing. And I actually coached her son in baseball for Little League. And we got to talking and she found out I was an author. She's like, oh, great. That's, that's great. So am I. I was like, yeah, okay. You know, cool. Whatever. I, I hear that a lot. So it's like, oh yeah, cool. You're an author. Great. And then she said, well, uh, I want you to read my story. So I wrote, I read her book and I was like, this is, I'm, why is not my thing, but this isn't bad. I like it. I'm enjoying it. It's got a good plot, good story. I like the main character. And then I, um, it came time for the stories to come in for chicks and I realized I haven't written a story yet. Oh boy. Um, I asked Ashley, would you like to write this with me? And she said, sure. Do you mind if it's silly? Well, this is me. So yeah, go ahead. So we, uh, she said, do you like Beauty and the Beast? And I was like, which version? So that's where uh, we kind of spiraled from there. But in the end, I think it was a, uh, a really fun story about uh, Belle. So it's the Emma Watson version, right? It is the, technically, it's the literary version that was officially published. Therefore, we do not get sued for. <laughs> okay. All right. Although it is the case that the villagers like sing about things. That, that, that's why she complains about it. There is no reason on God's green earth why they should be up at eight in the morning singing about the day. Singing There's their feelings. No, no. Nine o'clock at the least. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so, so Beauty and the Beast, the Beast is her tank. The Beast is La Bete. La Bete. The tax man wants to marry her. Yes. Uh, she said, well, that's interesting. You know what I'd like for a, a betrothal gift is a, is a mortar. He said, that sounds good and gives her a mortar. So she has a tank and a mortar. And then the story is about how the betrothal is ultimately resolved. Yes, yes, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, there is a resolution. <laughs> there is a resolution. Uh, comedy, Beauty Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Uh, uh, very, very, and like, like Esther's story, very kind of knowing comedy, right? I mean, there's, uh, yeah. So, it's, it was written all tongue-in-cheek. Ashley has a wicked sense of humor, and I just was along for the ride on that part, so. Yeah, yeah. Um. All right, let me let me let me talk about one story. I, I liked all these stories, but let me just talk about one, and then let's get Marisa. Marisa's been waiting very patiently, uh, and and we have so many exciting things to say about Marisa. Um, but I also uh, want to say exciting things about G. Scott Huggins, um, who wrote kind of a fantasy, kind of a historical novel. Um, so uh, the title is uh, Jean d'Arquitonnerre, uh, and which echoes sort of Jean d'Arc, Joan of Arc. And uh, the Jean here is really uh, Giovanna. She's a Fiorentine uh, girl uh, who's born. Uh, she, she's crippled. She has she has from birth bad legs, right? And uh, but 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 great everything else. She's very smart uh, and 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 very bold, and uh, she sort of becomes an apprentice 
to Leonardo da Vinci. And so the sort of context is defending the city of Florence against uh, the uh, Cardinal Borgia. Uh, well, it's yeah, it's it's the 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 Duke. It's Cesare Borgia, right? Who's the Duke right. of Milan, who's related to uh, the Pope. Right, right, right. Uh, and uh, and the backstory is that Cesare Borgia blinded Leonardo da Vinci when he thought basically he was giving da Vinci's he was giving technological secrets to Borgia's enemy rather than to Cesare Borgia. And so the story is about revenge, right? And the fun conceit is that, of course, Leonardo da Vinci like left us cryptic designs for all kinds of stuff, including tanks. <laughs> and da Vinci's tank is called La, La Tartaruga, the tortoise. And in the story, there are five of these tortoises uh, and they're basically uh, steam powered, or at least the, the, the weapon is steam powered. It's a steam powered cannon that fires a giant wooden flechette. And it's about going into battle with these five tanks to take revenge on Cesare Borgia. So uh, yeah, a lot of fun. I don't know if technically it's fantasy. I like I, I, the tanks might work. I don't know. Alternate history. maybe. It's, it's at least alternate history. That's yeah. It's, it's it's definitely not straight history. Um, yeah. All right, Marisa, I've been torturing you. We could talk about five more stories and then come back. You can talk about all these stories. They're amazing. Yeah. So uh, tell us about uh, tell us about your story. Yeah, uh, my story is called Next Question, um, and the conceit in that one is the way they get sentient AI is by overlaying it in part in a genetically edited human's brain. Um, so that's how you get an AI that can tell the difference between kill these people good, kill these people bad, is by bonding them with a human. Um, and so you meet Talon and B on their very first assignment. They've been in training their whole lives. B um, is the AI. B is the AI. Um, Talon, Talon Rees, right, yes. is the woman. Yes, Talon Rees. Um, so they're breezy together because, you know, you need a call sign. The um, B and, e and then and her name, right? This yep, is the, yep. we got a couple other characters who have similar. Yep. 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 It's a, it's a trend. I mean, the, you figure these these um, soldiers have been raised together since birth. So some of their humor and practices might be pretty immature. Um, and you actually meet them in the middle of their pre-assignment games, um, which is getting as roaringly inappropriately drunk as humanly possible the day before um everything gets real they're new graduates and they are living it up they are um so that's how you meet them so she's very hungover for her official assignment in which b becomes a tank um so b the ai is loaded into the tank they are now a tank pair for ground assault i mean defense um and you follow them on their first assignment when everything goes horribly 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 wrong um and it turns out it's more horribly, horribly wrong than they could have even imagined. Um, and so there is a definite end to the story and in, in a resolution of what happens there. But I could not stop thinking about what happens to them afterwards. So without spoilers, I just. Yeah, it's 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 like. Science fiction, tinfoil hat, military industrial complex kind of stuff. A little bit. Right. Yeah. So. Um, Okay, so that's interesting. So some, so uh, so something that is that maybe not everybody watching this knows about you yet. This will air mm -hmm. like in January. Mm -hmm. um, 
is that you have a book coming out with us. I right? do. I do. Um, Congratulations. Very thanks. exciting. Thank you so much. I'm a little bit giddy. And by a little bit, I mean excessively fangirly giddy about yeah. it. Um, It'd be giddier if we paid you a lot of money, but you know, you're, you're a little giddy. I mean, to be clear, I am a, a fair sized giddy. Um, and oh, okay. All right. Mm. I mean, no, not like a come on, baby my, out there my, here. Guys. My experience is that the, the true, truest thing I've heard yet in science fiction publishing is Kevin Anderson's promise that you might make dozens of dollars. Dozens. <laughs> dozens. It's amazing. Um, so I mean, the, tell us about my, the connection. Tell yes, us about okay. the story and the book and yeah. Yes. So one outsized giddy still regardless. Um, so I currently live in an RV, so I don't have a ton of books um, that travel with me. They're mostly in storage, but many of those books are full or those boxes are full of Bain books. So I will be outsizedly giddy about being able to hang out with uh, really talented, amazing storytellers like some of the folks on this call right here. Um, so the it's all of you, Jason. Stop pointing. All of you. Um, so the, um, the short story ends, um, Talon and B have found some things out. It is conspiracies all the way down. Um, and then 40 years later, because nothing happens fast when you discover conspiracies, um, more things are happening. So you actually, the novel will pick up with a different version of main characters, you know, <laughs> give, <laughs> give more okay. away. Um, but you will see Talon and B again. Um, they are, they are trying really hard to upend the issues in the universe. Um, yeah. and they're finding that to be trickier than expected for, for many reasons. Um, okay. so it's a whole novel for that. So do you, um, to some extent, genre, genre is very artificial, right? But like, nevertheless, do you see this as sort of military sci-fi? Do you see it as more space opera? How, how do you see like the genre of the of the novel? Yeah, it's more it's more space opera than military. Like the military is there um, in that it exists, and that's why we've got tanks, and it's why we've got these AIs hosted in human brains. Um, but the conspiracies go beyond the military, as they would have to. Um, and so you pretty quickly get dumped out of the, the military conceit into the broader galaxy um, okay. and all of the sideways things happening there. Okay. So Breeze, we, we wouldn't expect to see Breeze investigating through the, the tools of the military hierarchy or whatever. Correct. Kind of a bigger lens. Yeah. They're sort of out on their own. Um, like they've got, they've got some friends, but it's, it's a big galaxy. So they've got a lot a lot of time on their own um and so it's a good thing when you've got an ai in your head because you're never alone until things happen <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> you have to operate in ways you are not prepared to operate yeah well uh thanks for the delightful story in the anthology and uh congratulations uh huge congratulations on uh on on the book deal that's really Thank exciting you so much. Are you going to, do you think there'll be sequels? Is there, was it, is it, does it depend? Do we kind There's, of always the hope. Um, There's always the hope. So, so the novel will definitely end. Um, I'm a big believer in this is a full story. Um, and Tony was very clear about that also. Um, so the, the story will definitely end and there's, there's always another level, right? So there's, sure. there's more happening in the galaxy that they'll figure out as they're going through. And I would love for there to be another book, but we will. 
We'll see wow. how it fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. Very, very cool. Jason, I think there's five stories we haven't talked about yet. Yeah. Um, what if we, we have... take turns and try and summarize them in like 30 seconds each? Is okay. that too breezy? Uh, I don't want to give anyone short shrift. They're all a lot of fun. Um, uh, why don't you pick one and tell us about it? Uh, okay. Kevin Anderson's uh, Hold the Line. Kevin Eichenberg. Oh, yes, Kevin Anderson. We like right. both of them, but they yes, are different. We love people. Kevin Anderson, but we're talking about Kevin Eikenberry. We also like wow. Kevin Eich We also love Kevin Eikenberry. He is amazing. Yes, we do. Wow, Kevin's going to kill me for Not that. Same one. person. <laughs> so, Kevin Eikenberry has a story called Hold the Line, where there's a tank commander and her, uh, I guess it'd be a brigade of tanks, maybe a uh, regiment of tanks. I'm not, I do not know army terms. I was Navy. Kevin um, does. He he was Army. Yes, he was a tank uh, commander. He is Army, I think. Uh, yeah, he is Army, and he was a tank commander. Yeah. Uh, and basically, couple. they're holding against the, the ooh, was it the Ripper or the Swarms? Uh, they're, they're insects. What are they called? The, the buzz? Buzzers. The Buzzers. Buzzers. The Buzzers. I was like, it has something to do with that. Yeah. Um, the Buzzers, and they're, they disobey orders in order to hold the line and save their valley and position from being overrun when the aliens det uh, attempt a flanking maneuver. And it's a really, really intense battle uh, starring the tank commander, her unit, and every them just literally getting fed into the, gr the grinder to stop this alien assault. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, the, the commander basically disobeys her order to just stand the ground to rescue mm -hmm. her scout, right? And so yes. there's sort of a classic I mean, it's not, there's some commonalities there with, uh, uh, with Sharon and Steve with your story, right? The individual choosing to maybe creatively interpret, uh, you know, what they were told to do um, and then taking the personal risk on that. Yeah. Um, Creative uh, interpretation is key uh, to survival. Yeah. Creative interpretation is key to survival, yes. Yeah. Um, Okay, fantastic. Jody uh, Lynn Nye's got a great story about detectives. Uh, Dina Malone and her partners, the Sergeant Detective or Te Detective Sergeant uh, Ramos, uh, and they are investigating uh, smugglers, and it turns out to involve aliens. And there's just a little funny personal note here uh, that the main character is carrying, uh, she's carrying a symbiote uh, in her, her abdominal cavity her peritoneum, which I read a little too fast when I read the first paragraph the first time, I thought, what? That's a really weird place to carry an alien. Then I looked back and said, oh no, sorry, it's in her belly. All right, got it. Um, <laughs> so uh, so there's some comedy, some kind of uh, buddy cop uh, banter in there, but mostly this is basically a kind of a police uh, detective sort of story. Um, I like that the, the detective is, um, she has a symbiote alien and she is also pregnant. Uh, so there's kind of an interesting uh, contrast between those things. Um, all right, Jason, we got three left. Um, Aaron Haskins, or I'm sorry, AC Haskins uh, delivered a, another tank commander story. And it was very interesting because he wrote this before the war in Russia broke out. And he's and also literally a tank guy. The war right? in isn't Russia. isn't he also person? Isn't he also personally a tank guy? Yeah, he was as well. He was yeah. a um, uh, West Point grad who was a tank commander as well. And uh, he wrote a story about a war in Russia, 
an Eastern European country, sorry, which may or may not involve Russia and Ukraine. And he wrote this well before the current conflict. Well, no, it says Russia. It says Russia and Ukraine. I was trying to give him the benefit of I don't You're trying to avoid the Chinese reading this recording or something and getting well, into Well, you know, some weird website. Near China, fiction. <laughs> the fictional story about tanks. All right. So um, Goddess of War is actually the cover story as well. Hmm. Uh, his, his tank commander and his tank is on the, uh, was the cover of the book. And it's a, a lone tank. It's separated from their unit uh, when they break down and they suddenly are deep behind enemy lines and all alone. And conflict comes up and there's fighting and they get rescued by a very um, interesting turn of events at the very end of the story. But it's basically it's a tank commander and her crew alone against multiple enemies trying to engage them and keeping themselves alive while they're in a damaged vehicle yeah and it's a pretty intense story it's very very uh very military hard military bent yeah they're playing dead there's an attack helicopter and they set off smoke grenades to try to look wounded right and then and then basically when the russians advance beyond them they have the ability to sort of get in a really hard surprise attack despite being being disabled yeah. uh and uh and and that's the kind of choice they face so uh yeah a lot of a lot of fun um all these guys with like actual military experience i have to make stuff up I, uh, <laughs> i'm envious i guess um all right joel presby's got a, a really fun story um I can't remember the title of the story, but there's a, ta- a tank named Ken. And Ken, tank- uh, Barbie and Ken versus the Hurricane. Yeah, and Barbie is uh, is uh, a National Guard uh, sergeant, or nas- she, she's the National Guard. She, and so, so I guess the, maybe the question here is being asked is, you know, hey, what do you do with the tank when, when the military is done with it? And this, the suggestion of the story is, well, maybe, maybe, you know, uh, maybe you can put them to use in disaster uh, uh, situations. So basically, Barbie is uh, driving her tank, Ken, around, uh, uh, clearing up traffic, rescuing uh, motorists who are causing trouble be- because they're not part of the electronic autopilot grid and their, you know, their fancy car is now stuck, rescuing EMT teams. Uh, Etc. So it is. It is about. Uh, it is about a tank operator on a disaster scene, uh, driving around rescuing people, uh, including. And she wears like a. She wears. She she's dressed in scuba gear. She has like scuba ad- apparatus because because one of the things they anticipate is she might have to drive underwater, uh, and at one point she does. She goes. It's that set in Norfolk, and at one yes. point she she goes into the river with the tank, knowing she has X number of minutes of oxygen. Uh, in uh in her breathing apparatus so if anybody's driven in norfolk they understand those tunnels in any kind of storm you're you're not getting through (laughs) yep yep all right hey one last story jason tell us about uh tell us about dad liberation by lydia shearer and david shearer actually the husband wife duo teamed up for this one um it's post-apocalyptic i think I think Texas or New Mexico. I'm, it's it's kind of it's a little vague. 
And basically, um, our star of the story, her dad was arrested and convict, tried and convicted almost immediately of uh, espionage and um, court-martial, pretty much. And she hijacks her dad's AI sentient tank to go rescue him. But she has no idea what she's doing. <laughs> so she manages to manipulate the... Um, the AI of the tank through a little bit of a um, uh, sneaky well, teenage teenage reasoning that the AI couldn't really fight against. And they go ahead and they go and try to rescue their, her dad while navigating their way through pretty much a wasteland where there's uh, nomadic tribes going around ready to destroy anything. Uh, they have to fight through a, a barricade at one point where there's armed guards with rocket launchers and the tank said, we're not equipped to deal with this, but we have this gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. It is. So, um, hey, thank you all for joining us. Any, any? I don't want to cut off any comments. Have we got any, any last observations they want to make before we wind up? I'm happy to share. I had a blast doing this. Everybody turned in great stories. And I've heard a lot of editors say doing an anthology is like herding cats. If this was hurting cats, these were the world's best behaved cats because I had no issues. It was great. It was easy. I want to do this again because it was that easy. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> All Thank right. Thank you, Jason, well, for inviting us. It was a very interesting challenge. It, it was a, an interesting challenge to be able to uh, to say, okay, and and I'll have to put it this way, with Esther in the background at all times, knowing that Esther was being part of it is an amazing thing. Anyway, this, I think, is probably the first or maybe the second time we've been in an anthology with her. And she's she's just a, a great person and a great source. And I'm sorry she couldn't be with us tonight because she she's just such a joy to work with and, and, and talk to. Yeah. I told Tony Weisskopf when I was doing this, I was like, I'm not going to do this without Esther's approval and permission first. Fantastic. Well, thank you all very much. Again, the book is Chicks in Tank Tops, out now in trade paper and all your favorite ebook formats. And Sharon, Steve, Marisa, Jason, thank you for joining me. Thank you. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. McDonald's call came in late in the afternoon, just as Johnny was looking over his pantry and trying to decide what to have for dinner. Sorry about the delay, McDonald apologized after identifying himself. 
I was out in the forest near the river most of the day with my phone turned off. No problem, Johnny assured him. Spine leopard hunting? Yeah. Got one, too. Likewise. Must be another migration. They don't usually find the territories we've cleared out quite this fast. We're probably going to be busy for a while. Well, things were getting dull anyway. What's on your mind? Johnny hesitated. There could be a good reason why Chalinor didn't want any word of his meeting going out on the airwaves. Did you get any unusual messages today? he asked obliquely. Matter of fact, I did. You want to get together and talk about it? Wait a second. Chris is trying to get my attention. A voice spoke unintelligibly in the background. Chris says you should join us for dinner in about half an hour, at her place. Sorry, but I've already got my own started, Johnny lied. Why don't I come over when I finished eating? Okay, MacDonald said. About seven C. Afterward, maybe we can all go for a drive together. Chalinor's meeting was scheduled for 7.30. Sounds good, Johnny agreed. See you at seven. Replacing his phone, Johnny grabbed a package at random from the pantry and took it over to the microwave. He would have liked to have joined the others for dinner. MacDonald and Chris Eljarn were two of his favorite people, and if Chris's father hadn't been out of town doing emergency surgery, he would have jumped at the invitation. But Chris and MacDonald were a pretty steady couple, and they got little enough time to be alone together as it was. With only two cobras to guard Ariel's 460 colonists from both Aventine's fauna and occasionally each other, spare time was at a premium. Besides which, he thought wryly, Spending more time in range of Chris's smile would only tempt him to try and steal her away from MacDonald again, and there was no point in making trouble for himself like that. Their friendship was too valuable to him to risk messing it up. He had a, for him, leisurely dinner, and arrived at the Eljarn's home at seven o'clock sharp. Chris let him in, treating him to one of her dazzling smiles, and led the way to the living room, where MacDonald waited on the couch. "'You missed the great dinner,' MacDonald greeted him, waving him to a chair. "'I'm sure you made up for my absence,' Johnny said blandly. Half a head taller than Johnny and a good deal burlier, MacDonald had an ability to put food away that was known all through the district. "'I tried. Let's see your note.' Digging it out, Johnny handed it over. MacDonald scanned it briefly, then passed it to Chris, who had curled up on the couch beside him. "'Identical to mine,' he told Johnny. Any idea what it's all about? Johnny shook his head. The dewdrops been out surveying the nearest system for the past couple of months. Do you suppose they found something interesting? Interesting as in dangerous? Chris asked quietly. Possibly, MacDonald told her. Especially if this news is really only for cobras. But I doubt it, he said, addressing Johnny. If this were a war council or something, we should all be meeting at Capitalia, and not Thanksgiving unless they're passing the news out piecemeal to the individual villages, Johnny suggested. But that again drops it out of the emergency category. Incidentally, who brought you the message? Almopire? MacDonald nodded. Seemed awfully formal, too. Called me C2 MacDonald about four times. Yeah, me too. Has Chalinor instituted the old rank system over there or something? I don't know. I haven't been to Thanksgiving for weeks. MacDonald glanced at his watch. I suppose it's time to remedy that deficiency, eh? Let's go see what Chalinor wants. Come back after it's over and tell me what happened, Chris said as they all stood up. It could be late before we get back, 
MacDonald warned as he kissed her goodbye. That's okay. Dad's coming home late, too, so I'll be up. All right. Car's out back, Johnny. Thanksgiving was a good twenty kilometers east-northeast of Ariel, along a dirt and veggie barrier road that was, so far, the norm in the newer areas of the human beachhead on Aventine. MacDonald drove, guiding the car skillfully around the worst of the potholes, while avoiding the occasional tree branch reaching out from the thick forest on either side. One of these days a spine leopard's going to jump a car from one of those overhangs and get the surprise of his life, MacDonald commented. Johnny chuckled. I think they're too smart for that. Speaking of smart moves, you and Chris to the point of setting a date yet? Um, not really. I think we both want to make sure we're right for each other. Well, in my opinion, if you don't grab her while you've got the chance, you're crazy. Though I'm not sure I'd give her the same advice. MacDonald snorted. Thanks, Aquilo. Just for that, I may make you walk home. Chalinor's house was near the outskirts of Thanksgiving, within sight of the cultivated fields surrounding the village. Two other cars were already parked there, and as they got out and headed for the house, the front door opened, revealing a slender man in full cobra dress uniform. Good evening, Moreau. MacDonald, he said coolly. You're twenty minutes late. Johnny felt MacDonald stiffen beside him and hurried to get in the first word. Hello, Lest, he said, gesturing to the other's outfit. I didn't realize this was a costume party. Simon Lest merely smiled thinly, a mannerism whose carefully measured condescension had always irritated Johnny. But the other's eyes showed the barb had hit its target. MacDonald must have seen that, too, and brushed silently by Lest without delivering the more potent blast he'd obviously been readying when Johnny stepped in. Breathing a bit easier, Johnny followed his friend in, Lest closing the door behind them. The modest-sized living room was comfortably crowded. At the far end, on a straight-back chair, sat Tors Chalinor, resplendent in his own cobra dress uniform. At his right, looking almost drab in their normal work clothes, were Sandy Tabor and Barl Deslone, the two cobras stationed in Greensward. Next to them, also in dress uniforms, were Hale Sintra of Oasis and Frank Petrusky of Thanksgiving. Ah, MacDonald and Moreau, Chalinor called in greeting. Come in. Your seats are right up here. He indicated the two empty chairs to his left. I hope this is really important, Chalinor, MacDonald growled as the two men crossed the room and sat down. I don't know what things are like in Thanksgiving, but we don't have a lot of time in Ariel for playing soldier. He glanced significantly at the uniforms. As it happens, your lack of spare time is one of the topics we want to discuss, Chalinor said smoothly. Tell me, does Ariel have all the cobras it deserves? Or does Greensward, for that matter, he added, looking at Tabor and Deslone. What do you mean deserves? Tabor asked. At last count, there were about 10,000 people in Caravel District and exactly 72 cobras, Chalinor said. That works out to one cobra per 140 people. Any way you slice it, a town the size of Greensward ought to have three cobras assigned to it, not two. And that goes double for Ariel. Things seem reasonably calm at the moment in Ariel, MacDonald said. We don't really need any more firepower than we've got. He looked at Tabor. How are conditions around Greensward? Firepower isn't the issue, Sintra put in before Tabor could answer. The point is that we're required to do a lot more than just guard our villages against spine leopards and falks. 
We have to hunt down wheat snakes, act as patrollers in domestic squabbles, and if we have any spare time left, we're supposed to help cut down trees and unload supply trucks, and we get nothing in return. Johnny looked at Sintra's flushed face, then at the other three uniformed men. A cold knot was beginning to form over his dinner. Ken, perhaps we should get back to Ariel, he said quietly to MacDonald. No, please stay a while longer, Chalinor spoke up hastily. C-3 Sintra was a bit more forceful than necessary. But stuck all alone out in Oasis, he perhaps sees matters more clearly than some of the rest of us. Let's assume for the present that he's right, that we don't get the respect we deserve, MacDonald said. What solution are we discussing here? It's not simply lack of respect or even the way we always seem to be taken for granted, Chalinor said earnestly. It's also the way the syndic's office takes forever to process the simplest requests for equipment or supplies, though they're prompt enough when it comes to picking up surplus wheat and glue-vine extract when we have it. They seem to have forgotten that the whole planet isn't as comfortable as Rankin and Capitalia, that when a frontier town needs something, we need it now. Add to that the mania for making lots of little frontier settlements instead of consolidating the territory we've got, which is why we're spread so damn thin, and you get a picture of a government that's not doing its job. To put it bluntly, we feel something has to be done about it. There was a long moment of silence. What do you suggest? Deslone asked at last. That we send a petition to the Dominion with the next courier ship? Don't be denser than you have to borrow, Tabor growled. They're talking about replacing Governor-General Zhu themselves. Actually, our thinking is that more than the Governor-General needs changing, Chalinor said calmly. It's painfully clear that the centralized system that works so well once a world is established is failing miserably on Aventine. We need something more decentralized, something more responsive to the planet's needs. Governed by those who do the best job, Johnny cut in. Us, for instance? In many ways, our struggle to tame Aventine is analogous to the guerrilla war we waged against the Trofts, Chalinor said. If I do say so myself, we did a hell of a job back then, don't you agree? Who on this planet could do better? So what are you suggesting? MacDonald asked, his tone far more interested than it had any business being. We carve Aventine into little kingdoms, each one run by a cobra? Basically, Chalinor nodded. It's a bit more complicated than that. There'd have to be a loose hierarchy to settle disputes and such, but that's the general idea. What do you say? Are you interested? How many of you are there? MacDonald asked, ignoring the question. Enough, Chalinor said. The four of us here, plus the three from Fallow, two from Weald, and three more from Headwater and the lumber camps upslope of the Curseage Mines. You propose to take over an entire world with twelve cobras? Chalinor's brow furrowed slightly. No, of course not. But I've talked to a lot of other cobras, both in and out of Caravel District. Most of them are willing to wait and see what happens with our experiment. In other words, to see how hard Zhu comes down on you when you declare independence? MacDonald shook his head. Your thinking's got loose connections, Chalinor. No cobra's going to be allowed to stay neutral in something like that. They'll be ordered to come here and restore the syndic's rule and their answer to that order will put them on one side or the other, with the odds at, let's see, twelve cobras out of six hundred twenty makes it about fifty to one. Which way do you think they'll jump? Which way are you jumping, MacDonald? 
Lest cut in suddenly from his seat by the door. You ask a lot of questions for someone who hasn't committed himself yet. MacDonald kept his eyes on Chalinor. How about it, Chalinor? This is going to take more than an ace or two up your sleeve. I asked you a question, damn it, Lest snapped. Deliberately, MacDonald turned to face the other. Just as leisurely, he got to his feet. I stand where I and my family have always stood, with the dominion of man. What you're talking is treason, gentlemen. I won't have any part of it. Lest was on his feet now, too, standing sideways to MacDonald in a cobra-ready stance. The loyalty of an Earth Scot or a fine dog, he sneered. In case you haven't noticed, Earth Scot, this dominion you're so eager to please is treating you like dangerous garbage. It's thrown you just as far away as it possibly could, with a hundred fifty light-years and two hundred billion troughs between you and civilization. We're needed here for the colonization effort, Johnny interjected, wanting to stand in MacDonald's support, but afraid the action might be misinterpreted. In such close quarters, an all-out firefight between the two cobras would probably be lethal to everyone in the room. That's donk dung, Moreau! We're here because it was cheaper than starting a new war just to kill us off, Lest ground out. The Dominion doesn't care if we live or die out here. It's up to us to ensure our own survival, no matter what sort of short-sighted fools get in our way. You coming, Johnny? MacDonald asked, taking a step toward the door. Lest took a step of his own, putting himself directly in front of the door. You're not leaving, MacDonald. You know too much. Take it easy, Simon, Chalinor said his tone calm but with steel underlying it. We're not giving these gentlemen a choice between joining us or death. Lest didn't move. You don't know this clown, Tors. He's a troublemaker. Yes, you told me that earlier. See too, MacDonald. Please understand that we're not doing this simply for our own personal gain. Chalinor's voice was pure sincerity. The people of Aventine need strong, competent leadership, and they're not getting it. It's our duty to these people, these citizens of the Dominion, to save them from disaster. If your friend over there doesn't get out of the way, I'm going to have to move him myself, MacDonald said. Chalinor sighed. Simon, step aside. MacDonald, will you at least think about what I've said? Oh, I'll think about it all right. With his eyes still unless MacDonald moved toward the door. Carefully, his attention on the still-seated Petrusky and Sintra, Johnny got to his feet and followed. If you'd like to stay, Moro, Chalinor called after him, we can get you back to Ariel later. No thanks, Johnny said, glancing back over his shoulder. I have some work I need to finish up tonight. All right, but think about what I said, all right? The words were friendly, but something in the tone made the hairs on Johnny's neck tingle. Suppressing a shiver, he got out fast. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Jason Cordova, Rob Hampson, Marissa Wolf, and Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Asharirod coming to you for the last time in 2022 from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next year at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.